struggled with the title for today, the subtitle. Obviously, the title of the series is Making Sense of Prayer. This is part two. But I had two different thoughts coming into this morning. And I started to call it the myth of unanswered prayer. The myth of, an, of unanswered prayer. And I was going to sort of take that one of two ways. And I feel like the Holy Spirit said, well, you could do a part two of the myth of unanswered prayer. Wow, that's brilliant. You're amazing. So this is Making Sense of Prayer Part 2, the myth of unanswered prayer, Part 1. <laughs> I know, it, it's deep. Yeah, you can imagine my prayer times, very deep. What transgressions distance you from God or hinder his response to you? You've been hanging around Genesis too much. None. Do you remember our text last week was in Matthew? Jesus was teaching on the hillside. And he started talking about the subject of prayer. Let's rehearse it. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. But when you pray, go into your room. What did we learn your room is? Not a closet. I gave a testimony of having gone into my, when I was much younger as a teenager, taking this very literal, literally, I would go into my bedroom closet, close the door, move some shoes and some clothes and pray. You say, wow, did God answer? I, not because of that. Go into your room. We found out last week that that's talking about the inner sanctuary of your being, your heart. Close the door and pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. We found out that that doesn't mean recompense for obedience, which is what I grew up with and used to believe, that if I'd pray and I'd ask correctly, he'd respond and give me what I asked for. Reward means to return to you something that was already yours. And when you pray, don't keep babbling like the pagans, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. In other words, to achieve God's blessing. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So we discovered that prayer is about relationship. It requires a whole different mindset of who God is. And Jesus admits that God already knows what we're going to ask. So why ask? Why pray? We discovered that it's because of a partnership. We actually have a partnership with God. And our prayers make a difference. Things in your circle of life, things in the world, things where you live, things in your family, your relationships, your, on your job, are not predetermined. God has not set up those things, stuck his hand in, into it, and in his omniscience, already determined how that's going to work out for you. 
There are those who believe that's exactly what God does with all of life, including your own will and decisions. No, quite the opposite. We found out last week that there's something called open theism. Authors like Greg Boyd teaches this extensively. And that very simply is this. There are options. God has left things open. He wants to partner with you. That's part of the beauty of prayer, is we partner with God to pray into circumstances. See, prayer changes things, and prayer changes me. Prayer changes things, let me re-say that, and things change me. God leaves possibilities open to me. However, there is a major hindrance to our relationship and our partnership with God. So I'm going to re-ask the question in a little bit different way. Does your behavior impact whether or not God hears your prayers? Let's turn again to the scripture. John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. See if you can locate yourself here. See if you can identify with the individuals that start this conversation with Jesus, okay? As Jesus walked along, he saw a man who had been blind since birth. Jesus' disciples asked, Teacher, why was this man born blind? Was it because he or his parents sinned? No, it wasn't, Jesus answered. Stop, hold the bar, bring the scripture down. Jeff loves it when I give him instructions. Jesus' disciples asked what all of us do when we see something going wrong in our life or somebody else's. What caused this? <laughs> right? Question number one. What caused this? And then we start looking. Pastor West this morning, in his message in the first hour, beautifully addressed how that what hung Jesus on the cross wasn't God. God did not murder Jesus. What hung Jesus on the cross is the same thing that drives you and I to want a reason for the sorrow, the pain, the things that are going on. What caused this? And who, notice, who sinned? Put it back up, Jeff, thank you. Who sinned this man? It's got to be either the man or his parents. Because if you're experiencing judgment, sickness, disease, things going wrong in your relationship, things falling apart at work, whatever. If you're experiencing anything like that, it must be the result of sin in your life. Well, you certainly aren't going to feel comfortable praying, approaching God on His throne. You're certainly not going to feel comfortable singing these couple of songs about the beauty of presence. Because you've got sin in your life. And the evidence of that is that things are going badly for you. Things are going poorly. 
It is question number one of the universe. And Jesus responds, No! Look at your neighbor and say, No! Imagine a little two-year-old. No! <laughs> Come on, say it with some depth. No! Say it to me, right here. No! <laughs> That's what Jesus said. Only not with that attitude. But I'm, I'm, I think Jesus was emphatic. No, it wasn't sin. No, it wasn't this person. And no, it wasn't his parents. I have heard for years how that the sin of the parents, the what the, how's the verse go? We'll follow you through the generations. The generational curse, right? Do you remember? When you get the phrase, just shout it out. Right? What? I know it's Old Testament. What's the phrase? We used to say it all the time. That the sin of the parents, there's a curse with that. And it's, yeah, we're, it's going to follow the children. And so we developed this whole method of, of dealing with the curses on your life. And what were those curses? Well, we weren't sure we'd get to them, we'd drill down to them. That took a lot of methodology and counseling and therapeutics and religious therapeutics. And it was just a mess. But one thing we were sure of, the curse that you were experiencing was a result of your behavior, either yours or your parents. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. Well, that's the exact verse. We charismatics used to refer to it as something. The curse, right? Now, here's, here's the... Okay, let me finish the verse. I'm getting excited. I'm sorry. Jesus answered, But because of his blindness, you will see God work a miracle. In other words, whatever you're going through that's disappointing, broken, a violation of God's best for your life, that's an opportunity for God to show up and change it. You all just act like a bunch of denominational people that, that aren't any freer than just, you know, looking at the prayers and looking at the, you know, what's going on and saying, oh, okay, yeah, I kind of agree with that. Man, I mean, did that touch your heart in any way that you might say, amen, Pastor Jeff? <laughs> I, I Thank you, thank you. I, it, it doesn't work when you're coached. That's exactly right. Why do I do that? All right, so here's the message translation. Watch this. You're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. Listen to Pastor Wes's message in the first service. There is no such cause and effect here. Look instead for what God can do. Mm. What's the title of this message? I'm just doing such a bad job this morning. The myth of unanswered prayer. And which part is this this morning? Part one. Part one, yes. Yeah. It, yes, it's part two of the series, but it's part one of this message. 
And what are we dealing with today? There's no such cause and effect between your behavior and unanswered prayer. It's a myth. Start looking inside for how God's going to bring you through that, how He's walking with you. Now, here's something that will flip your theology upside down. And I never used to hear the previous scripture and this passage that we're about to read taught from the pulpit in the circles I ran in. Never. It just, I, I think maybe preachers, when they came to these verses, kind of crossed through them and said, stay away. I don't know. It doesn't it fit with my theology, and so I got to stay away from that verse. Look at this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 through 45. You have heard people say, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you to love your enemies. Pray for anyone who mistreats you. Then you'll be acting like your Father in heaven. Because what does he act like? He makes the sun rise both good on both good and bad people. He sends rain, in other words, blessings, for the ones who do right and the ones who do wrong. What? That was never taught in my circles of influence. See, the gospel is healing, not judicial. It's redeeming, not judgmental. All that Jesus taught was restorative and not punitive. Paul even refers to the Old Testament law and covenantal way of... And let me... Re, I want to get the word covenant out of it. The old style of transactional relationship with God, where if I do this, then he'll do that. Paul even refers to that. Now, what... <laughs> Watch this. I know you can't see it, and it's not going to be up there. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. Write it down. Check me out later. He calls that whole system, found primarily in the Old Testament, the ministry of death written and engraved on stones. What? You mean there's portions of the Bible that are a ministry of death, not meant for consumption in terms of interpreting God's character? So, consider this thought. Individuals, myself, who prioritize moral righteousness, strict adherence to doctrine, and rigid categorizations over genuine connections are, regrettably, constrained and obscured by their religious devotion, functioning within the paradigm of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was not the tree of evil that Adam and Eve ate from. Quit calling it that. It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, where you're constantly doing this comparison, putting people's in, people in categories, judging certain people as in and who's out. A person emailed me. Oh, I think it was last year. 
year before, a person emailed me, and he led his email with this statement. What do you believe? What is your doctrinal statement? Where do you think that's going? If you're ever interested in a church, okay, like, you know, it catches your eye or your ear or somebody recommends it, get the pastor's number, call him and say, hey, I'd like to go out to dinner with you. I'll buy. <laughs> Coming up. <laughs> Coming up, we have a commitment from one of the church members. We have a commitment to take me to dinner. Actually, it was a bet. He lost. Um, <laughs> how about a connection? How about instead of judging and living out of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we, we consider connecting with people. can't connect with that person. You don't know what they're like. You don't know what they said. Or, how about this one? That person's gay. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, so am I. I'm trying to get more gay. Oh, I know. I know. Don't email me. Don't submit things on the website. It's okay. Hang in there. We're going to be doing a whole panel and series on LGBTQI plus with some precious gay pastors from California that we have come into a relationship with. I mentioned the individual recently who messaged us just before we left for California and said, quote, when they saw, you know, some of our statements on the website, we are not to condone behavior which leads to hell. Personal interpretation of their own. How can you allow this in your church? Second Corinthians three seven, the ministry of death. So here's how here's here's what got the religious people of Jesus' day so upset. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples were walking through some wheat fields. His disciples were picking grains of wheat as they went along. Some Pharisees, just insert religious people, pastors and elders of the church and so forth, asked Jesus, why are your disciples picking grain on the Sabbath? They're not supposed to do that. It's illegal. We have religious convictions here. Jesus answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his followers were hungry and in need? It was during the time of Abathar the high priest. David went into the house of God and ate the sacred loaves, the bread that, were, that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his followers. Jesus finished by saying, Watch, People were not made for the good of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the good of people. If you believe something and you call it Jesus or scriptural or biblical, but it shuns other people, shuts them out, puts them in groups, causes 
ill feelings, and even hatred? That is not Sabbath character. That is not God. I don't care what you say about it, and I don't care what clobber passages you want to find in the Bible, largely in the Old Testament, to pull out to clobber people with who believe differently than you do. Jesus just simply was not about that. He said, no, stop it. It was neither this man nor his parents. And prayer, prayer itself has long been referred to as one of the classical disciplines. I've called it that. It's part of the classical discipline of being a strong Christian. Wrong, 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 wrong. It isn't about transaction. It's about transformation, presence, not performance. I love a quote from Brian Zahn who said, The question isn't, is it biblical? Wars of conquest are biblical. The institution of slavery is biblical. The death sentence for adultery is biblical. Using women as property is biblical. The question is not, is it biblical? The question is, is it Christ-like? My wife said, so biblical and Christ-like are not necessarily the same. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, check me out. The strength of the law, or excuse me, the strength of sin is the law. Here's Romans chapter 4, verse 15. The law brings down God's anger, but where there is no law, there's no disobeying of the law. <laughs> so there's no anger. Holman Christian Study Bible says this regarding that verse. For the law produces wrath and where there is no law there is no transgression. Stop the sin consciousness. Sin consciousness will absolutely ruin your prayer life. I love this quote by Richard Rohr. The absolute religious genius of Jesus is that he utterly refuses all debt codes, purity codes, religious quarantines, and searching for sinners. He refuses to divide the world into the pure and the impure, much to the chagrin of almost everybody, then and now. Amen. Brother Roar. I want you to say something with me. It'll come difficult after you say it, and then you'll think about it, and then you'll think, I shouldn't have said that. Say this after me. Sin is geographical. Some sin is geographical. I'll never forget the first time. Nina and I were invited to England. We went with our then pastor to England to a big church conference. And I mean thousands 
And being pastors, our pastor was invited up prior to the service, prior to coming out, you know, all the leaders coming out onto the dais and getting ready for service. Prior to that, they were in a back room, kind of a green room, if you will, but, you know, great big. There are a couple dozen ministers back there. Well, our pastor invited us to, to come back to the room, the green room, the preparation room, prior to the start of service. <laughs> big, long room. And I looked over, and on that end, the entire end, were tables of liquor. Yeah, they were getting ready, all right. <laughs> they were really going to have the Holy Ghost, Nina said. Nobody was getting drunk, but some were having, and it was just in that culture, they don't have all of the ooh that we do here in Western evangelicalism. It just wasn't an issue. So there were some beers and some wines, and it just wasn't an issue. And I remember, because I was a lot younger, and I was not near as free or as informed. I had not deconstructed like I have. So talk about offense. I was so offended. I thought, how can any of these ministers dare walk out there into the pulpit and pretend to represent Jesus Christ? Bless God. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. So now we draw near freely and boldly to where grace is enthroned to receive mercy's kiss and discover the grace we urgently need to strengthen us in our time of weakness. I read the most amazing post from Francois this week, coming into the weekend. And of course, you know we're in Lent, the season of Lent. That's why we have a lot of purple for liturgical churches, this is a eight-week period of lots of the special prayer, even color coordination of services, specific messages on prayer, repentance, sin, Christ, death, burial, and resurrection leading up to, of course, Easter, all of this. And it's called Lent. We started Lent with Ash Wednesday. Right? The ashes on the forehead. So when I read this, I thought, well, you know what? This will be my contribution to Lent. Because we're not liturgical, so we don't quite do that or celebrate that quite the same way. But when I read this, I thought, wow, what a stunning way to end a message of this sort and keep the spirit of Lent. Francois Dutrois, author of the Mere Translation. Quote, Pleading the blood isn't a Bible-based formula taught by the apostles. What makes the blood of Jesus most powerfully significant is in what it communicates. 
Unlike the idea that the ultimate most expensive sacrifice would perhaps persuade deity to look differently and favorably upon sinful humanity, this is not deity getting even with humanity in the typical language of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth judgment. This is deity reconciling humanity to themselves. Jesus did not do what he did to reconcile God with us. This is Father, Son, and Spirit clothed in human skin, lovingly and willingly, going to the gruesome extreme of a ridiculously unfair trial by a human court and the scandalous execution of innocent life in order to persuade us most convincingly of their priceless esteem of us and their relentless love for us and to forever rescue our minds from every definition of unworthiness and condemnation and every sense of separation. He ends by saying, In the broken, bleeding body of Jesus, the incarnate engineer of the universe willingly dies humanity's death at the hands of his own creation in order to redeem their minds from the plague of sin consciousness that left us distant and indifferent for ages and generations, stuck in the wilderness, and our self-help religious and survival systems. End quote. If you desire that, let me know and I'll print it or email it to you. Next week, in part two of the myth of unanswered prayer, we're going to talk about the lifestyle of silence the lifestyle of prayer silence because really it's not about all the things we say it's going to be a completely new look at, at, at prayer that's why I've called the series Making Sense of Prayer because for a lot of us for a long time though we've done it dutifully prayer hasn't made sense especially when it's not answered I know all of you always get your prayers answered. I've struggled personally. And so I'm just like testifying. I'm just, it's kind of like being in an AA group, you know, where you sit down in a circle and say, Hi, my name's Jeff. I have problems with prayer. Outdone by a congregant. She gets the laugh. I was trying to be funny. She gets the laugh. It's great. It's just, it's just how it should be. What'd you hear? 